This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by The Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear squeeze on the stereo. So when you're in the Chicago area, just take a look in the window of The Underground Retrocade. You'll see row upon row of classic arcade cabinets, and you'll be tempted to play them all. The Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. A very sick Carrington Vanston, by the mm-hmm. way. And you're listening to No Quarter, the classic video arcade game podcast thingy that you listen to through your speaker headphones things. I love our new slogan. That's really catchy. Easy to remember and repeat back to your friends. I am sick again. Uh, I was sick yeah. not that long ago. I used to never get sick and now I'm sick twice. I must be being like nature of being old. Either that or you're just sick of being on the show. I can't even hear, so it makes for interesting podcasting. I realize I'm like, yeah, I'm having wow, I can't actually hear out of one of my ears. I'm so congested. I'll just have I'm listening to you through the other ear though. It's all good. Well, it's not like you listen to me anyways. So. Exactly. So it really is no difference. <laughs> <laughs> this is show number uh one oh one. Do we celebrate this one? No, other okay. than that it's kind of a a cool symmetrical number. Yes. I think I kind of blew last week's 100 celebration because I kept teasing you about it and you said, screw it, we're not doing anything. So uh, maybe we'll do something for 104 or as one of our readers suggests, maybe we'll do something for number 107. 107? Sure. Let's do 107. Speaking of that, Carrington, are we going to do feedback this week with you being all ill and sick and stuff? I'm going to read people's – I'm going to read as much email as I can without coughing. As soon as I start to cough, that's the end of the email. Okay, so uh, Mark wrote in to say, hey, guys, just listen to another great podcast. Can't wait for the grand celebration once you hit 107. You see why I picked this one? Mm -hmm. And wanted to send you this link. It's a video of Richie Knuckles demonstrating the three-bird bug and suicide trick. I'm not quite sure if this trick was used in the WR run, but it's a good demo demo from the WR holder himself. Keep up the great work. And I will admit that it took me a while to figure out the WR means world record. I've been a little <laughs> slow this week. So we'll have a link over to it. It's, it's a video over on twitch.tv. And so it's a sort of shot kind of from an angle just on the screen. And it's an unfortunately lined up shot where you can't really see the bottom of the screen. I keep thinking, why don't you move the camera? Why don't you move the camera? So we can actually see what's happening. It's very disappointing. But it does show the, you know, shoot three birds in a row and get a really high score thing that we talked about last week. And it shows this suicide trick that we didn't talk about last week. At least I don't think so. Where after, I think it's the fourth mothership bad guy thingy, you immediately go off to the left and as soon as your your um, ship that's the word I'm looking for as soon as your ship touches the left of the screen you hit your your shield button and you'll hear this little beep and it puts it into some weird mode where you now just wait you can't shoot anything you just wait to die something will eventually come down and hit you mm-hmm. and it jumps your score up again so that was pretty cool all right oh there, you know what there was actually another another trick in the video like in the middle that isn't mentioned in the title, but was new to me. And it was on, I think, the first mothership. 
the way he deals with that is because you know how you get a you get a higher bonus score depending on how low the mothership gets. And I always figured, well, I got to shoot it before it hits the very bottom. Turns out it doesn't go all the way to the very bottom. You can always squeeze under it, but it's just really dangerous because there's not a lot of room there. So what he does for the first ship is he knocks away that moving band to to create a plugs like little holes in that, and he does that by whittling away off to the side. And then at some point, he whips to the middle and fires, and it actually goes right through the ship. There's like a clipping error, and it'll go right through that big, lumpy shield on the bottom and go right up the middle to the, uh, the mothership. So that's another trick he showed that wasn't in the title. So I learned three. Well, I learned two things and saw one more. So good video, I thought. Speaking of video, uh, my co-host from another podcast, Quinn Dunkey, uh, shares this email. She says, I had to share this with you guys in case you haven't seen it. It's a really fun montage of arcades in movies it doubles as a handy reminder of how many movies michael j fox was in during the 80s you think you remember but trust me you don't uh what stuck with me watching this was is that we lost something else when we lost arcades a camera angle any scene where the act of playing a game is central to the moment will feature a shot of the actors uh with a camera placed where the game's screen would be sometimes the game's graphics are overlaid transparently so that the camera appears to be inside the cabinet looking outwards no doubt there was a skill developed by the 80s actors of pretending to play a game with their faces and body language while slightly looking downward directly into a camera lens. Interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Mm-hmm. The first film I ever made was called Duck, Duck, Goose. And there's a scene in that where the lead fellow was typing on his computer, just sort of doing a, a web search, trying to find a job. And the way I shot that was point of view from the monitor. So I did the same thing. And I think it's just because I'm an old school arcade guy. So I just assumed, well, that's a totally valid and normal way to position the camera. <laughs> so we overlay the search engine in reverse on the screen. And we're looking through it up at him looking down. And yeah, he also had no problem just sort of pretending to type and staring down into the, the faux monitor. So I think it's just an age thing. We get used to seeing that, uh, that angle. So and it's funny. I hadn't thought of it in years until we got to Quinn's email. What I like are the ones that are, are – it's so bad that like as as the hacker is typing away late at night on his Commodore 64 to break into NASA and, and launch the nuclear nuclear missiles because that's what you can launch from NASA is nuclear missiles, of course. Of course. The letters of, of the, the text of the screen splayed across the actor's face in such a way that it, it actually like follows the contours across the bridge of the nose and over the cheek and that sort of thing. Yeah, because everybody always has their monitor as just a projector firing at their face. <laughs> right. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. And speaking of the C64, boo, um, Rick on the East Coast wrote in, look at us segueing this. We're even segueing in the, Man, in the we're feedback. we're so good at we this. Good. We, this we'd be even better if we didn't talk about it when we I did I might not it. be able to hear, but I can podcast. <laughs> uh, Rick on the East Coast says, hey, guys, I wanted to thank you for covering Phoenix. Finally, a game I've heard of, remember, played, and liked. But I really want to thank you for recommending Rob McMullen's Player Missile podcast. I've been listening and have found it to be interesting and entertaining, and I didn't even have an Atari 8-bit back then. I didn't have an Apple either. I had a Commodore 64 preferring real sounds on the computer to ticks and beeps. How dare you, sir? He says, I know I'm dead to at least one of you. I think you're dead to both of us, Rick. Anyway, he says, uh, keep up the great work. We will. That's what Apple II people do, Rick. Uh, Michael wrote in to send us a link to Bank Panic, the Bank Panic handheld on the iPhone. And at first I thought, well, Hey, it's a whole other version of Bank Panic we didn't talk about. Well, it turns out, no, it isn't. So we'll have a link over to the Touch Arcade review of it. But this is more like those old Nintendo Game & Watch games. And I guess there was one of those called Bank Panic 
but it was really more like the old stock market panic where people were jumping out of windows. And so you're on the bottom with one of those little net thingies trying to catch people who are otherwise plummeting to their death. So very different theme. <laughs> um, but for 99 cents, it's hard to go wrong. And it's neat to play those old Game & Watch games. So this emulates one of those on the iPhone. Well, I have one of my co-hosts here that I'm talking to right now. One of us already emailed me, so it must be the other one. He tweeted at us, actually, that we had completely forgotten to talk about uh, the Apple II version of Phoenix called Falcons. Do you remember That's that game? Right. I do, and I really liked it, and we forgot to mention it. Piccadilly Software uh, made it, and you can check that out in your favorite emulator. It's a really good version, too, so I can't believe that never occurred to me. I know. Let's be all this Commodore 64 talk. Mess with my mind. Okay, one more. I think I can resist coughing for one more. Alex says, I'm pretty sure that the, that next week's game is Bump and Jump. I have no idea why they felt the need to use the second apostrophe. I'm going to talk about that one, Alex. Even though I played this game pretty continuously for two years in 1988 and 1989. At my intermediate school, grades 7 and 8, there was a large indoor pool, which was available both to students during the day and to the public at night and on weekends. So every day after school, I would walk over to the pool and play their one arcade game, which was a fairly worn copy of Bump and Jump. I pumped a ton of quarters into the game over that period, though I can't remember ever being very good at it. (laughs) The game is so associated with the pool to me that I can almost smell chlorine as I type this. Anyway, I've been listening to the podcast since the first episode, and I'm a huge fan. Keep up the good work, and congratulations on episode 101. Thank you very much, Alex. And it's so funny because we've talked about that in a few episodes going way back to the beginning shows about how you can have that really visceral memory of a game and remember not just playing the game, but remember like that cabinet in situ. When we when we did the arcade draft, I think it was Quinn talking about how she could remember the specific positions of certain games in her favorite arcade. And I can still remember them as well. I remember when I first played Tron, I know the arcade I played it in. I know exactly where it was situated in that arcade. And I have the same sort of associations with certain games as well, with smells and with sights and sounds. Because you get that, it's a whole different thing when you're playing an arcade or you're playing an arcade game in a in a pizza place that you always used to frequent. So you always remember the pizza place, something like that. So it's really nice association. I like that kind of stuff. So yes, he's correct. Today's... Game is bump and jump, or bump if you were jump, or if you were in Japan, it was burning rubber. Also with an apostrophe, and that's because it was made by Data East, a company Our favorite. out of Tokyo. Yes, yes they're awesome. Yes. We we actually kind of like some of their arcade titles. Now Apple II ports, they were crap, but that's a different division of the company, so we won't hold this game against them. I think I will. So I think we should talk about these apostrophes. Go ahead, sir. See, it's a it's a pet peeve of mine, actually. When people, I'm going to go get some coffee while you pet peeve. I'll be right back. Don't use both apostrophes. If you're dropping both the A and the D, then you need two apostrophes. That's what I say. It drives me crazy when people put just an apostrophe N when they're dropping off two letters. And it's interesting. On this, the manual actually calls it bump and jump. It uses an ampersand in the manual. On screen, the graphics have two apostrophes. Um, but there's only one apostrophe on the cabinet art. If you look at the logo on the actual cabinet, there's just one apostrophe. So there's sort of every version. But clearly the only correct one is the one on screen with two apostrophes. And so say I. You must really dislike Guns N' Roses then. I do. And it's funny, you play um, the character Jumpin' John in this, and again, with an apostrophe. So this is just like an apostrophe riddled game. I didn't catch that you played a it's in the manual. Oh, I see. Because there's nowhere else in the game and, you know, you don't actually – you just drive a car. So let's talk about it. It's a, a driving game. Reminded me 
Um, sort of the, the layout and the movement of the car, except for the jumping part, really, and the guns not firing. A lot of Spy Hunter. Yeah, me too. You accelerate along a narrow road vertically up the screen. You can sl- speed up, slow down. Uh, in this game, unlike Spy Hunter, you can't shoot at anything, but you can. You have use of a jump button once your car exceeds 100 miles an hour. And you can use that actually as an offensive weapon because if you land on another car, the car explodes and you get extra bonus points for that. And you have to be going, like you say, 100 miles an hour to jump. So if you bump into things, the goal, of course, is to... You'll both bump and jump, and you can knock certain cars, most of the cars, you can bump into them, knock them into walls to destroy them. But if you bump into a car from the back or from the side and it's in front of you, then it slows you down. So it's also important to try to bump things when you're in front of them or land on the front half of the car because then you'll get a little speed bonus because it is really important to keep that speed up because every once in a while you'll see that jump okay on screen, which means it's okay to jump. But you'll see these um, exclamation points appear, and that means a big gap is coming up, and you have to jump it. So you want to make sure you're keeping that speed up during this game, or you are doomed. Doomed, I say. Data East does sort of give you a, a way out. In some cases, the, the where the, where the bridge ends, you might if you if you know it's coming, you can move over to the left, and there'll be a thin strip of road, so you don't have to jump, or there'll be a little island in the middle of the water that you can, if you time it right, you can bounce off of that. Jump and you get again. points. You get a thousand points if you land on one of those islands. Yep, it's really kind of you really want to keep going as fast as you can. Yeah, because the other your opponents, the other cars will bump into you and knock you into things. So that little strip of road between the big gaps is a really dangerous place to be driving. I, I use it a lot of times to land. I'll, I'll jump and then I'll get the exclamation point and realize, oh, I'm going to land in the gap because I've jumped too early. But then if you go off to the left, you can sort of land in that little strip. But what I try to do is just immediately jump again. I just use that as a, as a springboard because it's such a dangerous place to be driving on that little tiny road. Obviously, uh, this game has very little to do with real world physics. And so it makes sense then that when you're, even when you're in the air, you can correct your left and right position. So you can kind of, if you figure out the rhythm of, of how fast you're going as to, as opposed to where the cars in front of you line up and where they're accelerating to, you can actually get pretty good at landing on these other cars just by, you know, steering left and backing off a little bit and come right down on top of them, that sort of thing. I did notice that there, and I don't know if this was a bug or something that I was doing, but Sometimes when I would land after a jump, the car would just careen off into a wall. And, and I thought, well, maybe I'm doing the joystick wrong. So I verified I hit the jump button a few times and there every now and then and I just let go of the joystick and it would land and just steer off into one of the one of the sidewalls and explode. So, oh, weird. I never got that. Um, yeah, very strange. Um, now, I played – I played bump and jump because I didn't even know about burning rubber until I kind of until a couple of hours ago when I was like, well, you know, okay, I've I've played enough and now I should probably read about it so I know what I'm talking about. Then I saw that oh, this was just a clone of of the Japanese version, which is called burning rubber. Although I couldn't see any difference in gameplay or anything because even the screens on the the Japanese ROM were in English. Earlier on, the cars you would get 200 points for just bumping them off the road or into a. a um, into an obstacle, that sort of thing, off a bridge. And then later on, the cars would be 300. And there are a total of 32 courses. And I, I'm told... I, yeah, anywhere I, really, I saw them all, sure. <laughs> yeah, right. whatever. And the game's difficulty ramps up by simply speeding you up and throwing more cars and rocks in And it way. does definitely ramp up. Like, holy cow, by the third... By the, really, by the third level. I'm cutting yeah. into my max. I'm not really good at this game. 
So Burning Rubber came out in Japan in, 80, in November of 82. It appeared here in the United States. It was licensed to Bally Midway for distribution as Bump and Jump. And that appeared in December of 82. But everything about this game feels like it's two years older, like 1980. It does. I, I completely agree. The graphics, the feel of the game, it really feels like a, a very good game from 1980. Right. And even the scoring, the top score on the high score sheet is 10,000. And if you scroll down, if you take a look down at all the rest of the scores seem to end in twos and multiples of, of, of twos, it's two, four, six or eight. And then I, as I was playing, I, I started noticing how, okay, so as with many driving games of the day, your, your score would increase simply for not dying as you move through the game. So kind of slowly climb up as maybe like a reverse bonus or something like that. But, and I noticed that it was doing it in, in uh, counts of eight and I couldn't figure out why they had chosen, you know, to, to increment the score by eight for every, whatever tick off the clock to, that, that you, uh, that they awarded points for. And then I realized, well, it's, it's a 6502 chip. And so it's an eight bit chip and that's why we're getting counts of eight. So I noticed that as well. Cause I kept, I was keeping kept track of my score and I kept thinking, Wow, they're they're not all ending in zeros. Although my actual high score for the week ends in zero, so I, I just got a round number. Even though I yeah, I got tons of scores. So I'm like, oh, it's ending in four or whatever. So I was like, oh, I hadn't realized how the scoring was counting up though. You spotted that I did not. And and your scores will always end in an even number. Ah, I had not noticed that. Yep. Oh yeah, looking over all my scores that I kept, then yeah, they were all all even. Look at you, Mister Deduction. I am so smart. It's MRT. So there are a bunch of different cars that you're up against in these opponents. And I did keep track of which ones were like the harder cars and the easier cars. And they're kind of color coded. So there's the yellow and green cars. And those are the ones that are slower than you. And they're also easily bumped. You hit them and they just go flying. Then there's like the tanks. They're also really slow, um, but they're really hard to bump. Basically, I just started avoiding them. There's the blue cars, which go like the same speed as you. And then there's cars... That are faster than you. There's these black cars. Though I think the black cars are actually about the same speed as you as well. They have a skull and crossbones on them. And they're like the toughest car. Like they seem to have like an AI with them. They will deke you out. And they, they come near you. And they, they try to get under you. And yeah, those, those are tough ones. And then there's these dump trucks that are faster than you. I don't know why the dump truck's faster than me than it is. But it will also dump rocks on the road. And that's one of the differences between playing in easy mode and hard mode. According to the dip switches. Is kind of how frequently these things dump um, rocks on the road is one of the differences. A lot of people online talk about how they find the hard mode actually easier than the easy mode. There's a lot of discussions about that. Hmm. Yeah, on the uh, Classic Arcade Gaming Forum, had a lot of people talking about there was a, a world record attempt on Twitch for that. And also they had a whole big discussion about the difficulty settings and most people sort of acknowledging that it's actually easier to get a high score on the hard level than the easy level. Well, that's going to be my excuse today then. Me too. Uh, so there, there were several different versions, I guess, of the game. There was the, the, the original arcade cabinet with the board in it. And, and those, that featured the Moz 6502 at one megahertz. And I had a secondary Moz 6502 also at one megahertz for the sound and a couple of AY 38910A chips. Uh, the Deco version featured the Deco C10707 CPU at 750 kilohertz, and it also had a, a 6502 at 500 megahertz doing some secondary processing. Same sound chips, but it had some discrete sound circuits as well. Uh, 256 by 240 pixel raster screen. Uh, it had a single joystick in the middle um, with the jump button on either side, so you could use it left or right-handed. 
the, the joystick was an eight-way, and it also had a middle setting. So if you push forward on the joystick, your car accelerated. You pulled all the way down on it. It slowed down. But if you left it in the middle, it would continue on at the speed you were going. So I guess technically that would be a ninth setting. It's a good-looking cabinet, too. I like it. It's one of those ones that has lots of art. The side art is only half height. So it's a bit of a cop, but I like full height side art, but at least it's like carved around it. So it feels like it's just a sticker, but it feels kind of custom, but it's got a nice looking, like really cartoony feel to it and a weird sort of color scheme where like the sides are uh, almost like a, almost wine red. It's a brownie red color. It's it's kind of hmm. a strange color, but it's got a good, colorful control panel. If simple, like you said, just the one eight-way joystick in the middle. That I should point out as well. When I loaded this up in MAME, it defaulted to a four-way joystick for me, which was messing up my game tremendously. So you want to check that it knows that it's an eight-way. So around the, the, there's a bezel around the monitor and it has some graphics and also instructions. And it probably mentions the, the jumping Jake or whatever his name is on that as well. Good looking, I was going to say, Good looking with a caveat. So it's good looking marquee, but missing an apostrophe. So if you play this game, you should bring a little bit of paint and you should put that apostrophe in there to correct it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> It's one of those cabinets that has kick panel art, like art down at the bottom on the front, which I really like. So bonus points for that. So it's a, definitely a nice looking cabinet. If again, a very, very simple one. And like, it, it looks like a really nice cabinet from 1980 as well. There was also a, um, a cocktail cab, but like most cocktail cabs, looked kind of generic. We talked about how this is one of the Deco cassette system cabinets. Two of the other big games for that are Lock and Chase and Burger Time. So if you're looking for more info about the Deco thing, you can check out our Burger Time review. I think we talked about it a bit there. I did learn a bit more about it. I found a flyer for the Deco system, which they call the Data East Multi-Conversion Kit. So I will put up that flyer in the show notes. And I found a site called the Finnish Retro Game Comparison Blog. And it's over, actually over at blogspot.ca, but it's a Finnish fellow who does retro game comparisons. He talk, he sort of compares various versions of various games, including Bump and Jump. And from that, I learned that the Deco cassette system version of Bump and Jump took two minutes and 47 seconds to load the game. My so you can see how, yeah, this was always promoted as, hey, the nice thing is you can swap back and forth games really quickly. Three full minutes of downtime after you've reassembled the cabinet and put this thing in. Um, that's a lot of downtime. That's a, like a crazy slow load time. Yeah, that's uh, one of the downsides to having a, a linear data system like that. And if, yeah. if you had a, a personal computer in the 80s before the era of the floppy drive, uh, you probably had a cassette system and you were, you know, experienced the same kind of thing at home. Or if yeah. you had a Commodore 64 with a disk drive, you experienced the same sort of thing. It's funny, too, because you never see those. The Deco cassette system actual cabinets rarely come up for sale. I wonder how – maybe those are like super collectible. I just – it's not the kind of cabinet I would want. I'm an instant-on kind of guy. If you've got the boards for either Bump and Jump or Burger Time, which are pretty much compatible boards, there's an adapter available over at quarterarcade.com to adapt those boards to work in a JAMA cabinet. So if you've got a JAMA cab, boo, you can upgrade it to something better like Burger Time or Bump and Jump with that cabinet, which or with the adapter, which costs, I think, 65 bucks. So I'll look at the show notes for that too. The uh, Deco-specific version, I guess, if you want to call it that, this is the model DT-127. I assume DT stands for Deco Tape. I, I think that sounds very reasonable. And it was released in April 1983, so a few months after the original arcade versions. Uh, Bump and Jump uh, was ported all over the place. Uh, showed up on the 2600, the Intellivision, ColecoVision, uh, Nintendo, the original uh, Famicom, uh, the yeah, Wii. Yeah, it's a good NES game. It's, it's a good port on the NES. 
uh, showed up on, on the Wii as part of the Data East Arcade Classics and the PlayStation Portable, those both in 2010. Burn and Rubber also got its own ports, port to the Famicom, the Japanese version of the Nintendo Entertainment System, obviously. And, oh yeah, the Commodore 64 also got this. Uh, yeah. Looks like that was the only home computer port, though. Oh, interesting. A lot of um, Data East stuff went to... Well, uh, actually, a lot of them went to Apple, too, as well. So the NES game... Uh, like I said, is is actually a really good version. And it's, it's a nice looking sprite. So it's like it's a good looking game. And a fellow named Ben Fry did this project um, as part of a series called Visually Dis- Deconstructing Code, which was shown in the Ars Electronica 2003 Code Exhib- Exhibition. I'll have a link over to the website because it's got this big poster called Mario Soup. And it basically it's a poster made of like it shows all the the sprites in a game arranged how they would be in memory. So you can say, like, here's a page of memory, and oh, here's yeah. where all the sprites mm-hmm. would be. And in the Mario Soup one is a few other games as well, including Bump and Jump. So you can kind of see how the sprites are arranged in memory for the NES version of Bump and Jump. It's pretty interesting to look at. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes too. I really like the colors uh, in the game. It's bright, it's colorful, but it's not annoying or, or distracting. Yep, I agree. You know, like you said, it, it sort of felt like I was playing an older game, but I was I never... don't like how your car wiggles, though. Yeah, there's it's a little... It's a weird yeah. sort of wiggly graphic, which I guess is supposed to make it look at the wheels. It should have just had the wheels wiggle or something. The whole thing kind of... I don't like the look of that in the game. Bugs me. I, I, I agree, and that, that was distracting when I first start a game. That's what my eyes are immediately drawn to, and maybe that's to help you distinguish your car from the cars around you. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm wiggling at you. Yeah, well, because you kind of do resemble all the other sprites on the screen, but I found after a while I didn't even notice that. Now, were you able to get the 50,000-point bonus for not crashing into anybody? My goodness, no. Me, and you'd be able to tell from my high score that I didn't, because I'll give you a hint. (laughs) It's way under that. Yeah. So if you can complete an entire level without bumping any cars into anything like other cars can crash on their own, like by hitting a rock or whatever, but you can't bump them into stuff. So basically like when you are the cause of somebody else crashing, a a score will show up above their crash. So as long as that never happens, you're fine. And the way to do it, I've read is to make like seriously heavy use of the jump button at the start, um, which is when all the white and blue cars are playing, come at me, (laughs) bra. So you want to jump out of those. And then the hard part would be that in those little, narrow confines later because it's hard to avoid either landing on somebody by accident or what have you but if you can get all the way to the end of the level and not cause anybody else to have an accident you get fifty thousand points i tried it a bunch of times but for the most part i would just end up having a terrible level because for the first half i would avoid everybody and then i would land on somebody and get a thousand points and i would only (laughs) have a thousand points for the whole freaking level yeah it's pretty awful i did find that it's if you're trying to go for that it seems it's better to just commit suicide than to hit somebody because basically get, I think a free, a free car at like 30,000 points. So if you can do this, even if it costs you a car to get through it, you're still one up. So it seems like a better way to go. And I suspect that's what everyone who does the high scores is doing. They're getting that 50,000 point bonus every level. I just was never able to do it even once. Yeah. I, I was not even aware of that. And it would have driven me crazy probably. Yeah. I kept trying, but it's like, no, I did find that there was some tolerance uh, about you bumping into the wall. And I don't know if it was maybe if you were going less than 100, you wouldn't immediately crash. Um, because it, at some points in the game, if you even touch the wall, you're, you're dead. That's just yep. it. At other Sometimes points, I would just touch it and I would sort of bounce off it. I'm like, oh. Good. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's that's because you're under 100 miles an hour or what, whatever it was. But 
that was sort of odd. There's so you know there was some weird stuff like that, but overall, I you know I kind of enjoyed the game, especially mm. for this being '82 and feeling like a much older game. The music was was bouncy and fun, and, and if you play it long enough, it, it does get annoying. I was tempted to to turn on something else, but I never got to. Me too. I never really got to that, to that point. point either. I still was listening to the music, so that's uh, I think indicative of pretty well done music because I listened to it a lot this week. And and this is a driving game without a wheel, so it's one that we could talk about here on the show. <laughs> really, that's kind of the reason we picked it. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm seriously considering getting a, a some sort of wheel set up for for Mame just so that we can talk about some of these other. Sure, yes, yeah. and, uh, and I can get a wheel that attaches to one. One way to go is the spinners can be adapted yeah. to be a wheel. So. I might do that. Uh, so they may end up doing that because I had a really fun time playing this and it reminded me that there were other great driving games out there that, that I want to talk about. So. Yeah, because I can't imagine we're going to do this forever and ever and ever and not talk about stuff like pole position and like right, exactly. the need to get a wheel eventually. One thing we haven't talked about in this, which I guess was a nice little detail, but I didn't – I don't know if it added a lot to the game, is that like each scenario is its own um, season. So like when you get to the end of a level, you get to this like gas pump. And it, that's how it ends the level. And then it, there's a little symbol there at the gas pump, and that'll show you what the next season will be. So if it shows like a flowering tree, then the next one will be spring. If it shows a life preserver, the next level will be summer. If it shows a tree with no leaves, then the next level is fall. And if it shows a snowman, that was it. Then the next level is winter. Oh, I didn't. Even I didn't that. find that that was adding a lot to the game. Although in the later winter levels, I guess there's lots of slippery parts of the road. And I can imagine that that would get really, really treacherous. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> that would be that would be terrible. Yeah. Fortunately, I wasn't good enough to make it to that point. Me neither. It's very fortunate that we suck in this we game. Suck. But again, this is not a game that I felt that. I mean, it, it ramps up in difficulty pretty quickly between the levels. But I never was so frustrated that I wanted to quit. I still had a great time. And I kept getting, even, and even I was getting levels. better. I started getting techniques and and, and sort of not really memorizing courses, but getting better at them and calming down sort of and not freaking out. There's a lot of people around me and just jumping out of it. And so I was getting little techniques down. I think with time you could get good at this. Because this is a game where, where like when you when you start playing and it gets crowded and it feels like things are moving quickly on the screen, your adrenaline can really get going, and you know you jump too soon or or accelerate at the wrong point. And I found early on that I would get so some of the cars, the the real slow ones, the dumb cars that you talked about earlier that just sort of sat there and like please hit me would often kind of hug the wall a little bit, and it was kind of tempting to you know oh, I'll just pick up some points and and hit that thing. But invariably, when I did that, I would end up spinning off into the wall myself or or getting crushed by a car that followed me in to hit me after I hit that one. Right. Or I'd hit it wrong and I would slow down. Yeah. So I just left those alone. So there are definitely some strategy and techniques and to, to improve um, your score. I generally found the more I jumped, the better I did. Right. The more I, time yeah. I would spend in the air because you're safe in the air. So it's limiting the times at which you're exposed. I found that like, like you were saying, I could steer it so that I would land on cars. You pick up a couple of points. If you land on the front part of them, then it also shoots you forward. So you're picking up speed. So little stuff like that was helping my game a lot. I did find that I didn't use slow down a whole lot because like you said, you want to, you really want to stay above a hundred so that you yeah. can use jump freely because if you, especially once you approach those uh, where you get the warning that you're going to need to jump over some water or something like that ahead, if you weren't up to speed, um, you could easily find yourself running out of road and then you would just explode at the end of the, when you hit the water. Right. The grand prize today on Starcade is the video arcade game Bump and Jump. Put your pedal to the metal and push your way through the traffic and jump when you can't drive. It's Bump and Jump, furnished by Data East. And now back to Starcade with Jeff Edwards. 
All right, Carrington, it's time to talk about our tiny scores. <laughs> How'd well, you do? My my tiny score, which wasn't isn't horrible. Like I'm not ashamed of my score this week. <laughs> it's not really good. Like m- to be honest, most of my scores were in the twenty thousands. They weren't great, but my the best I did was thirty six thousand two hundred and forty. Oh. Oh, is that a good O or a bad O? It's a bad O for me. Oh, it's a good O for me. What you get, Mike? No, go ahead with what you were going to say. I was just going to say that that's an amazing score that I got, and I'm particularly proud of it now. All right. Well, moving on to the world record. Oh, I want to talk. Well, I want to hear yours, but then I want to talk about the world record because I got two different things that might be the world record, and I'm not sure which is right. Okay. Well, uh, I, I racked up a, a grand 32,686 uh, points. I beat you. You beat me down. All right. So let's talk about uh, the world record I have that it was set by Marco Donatio. Is that the one? Okay. So now you've got a totally different one than the two I had. The main info file lists the the world record as having been set by Marco Donatio at 2,429,540 points on October 5th, 1984. What do you have? Okay, I've got two that came after that. So he probably was originally the... the, Ah, okay. So then... In 2011, on Christmas Day, actually, a fellow named Charlie Werner got 3,175,880, and that was the high score for a long time in, in Twin Galaxies. Now, Twin Galaxies then was gone for a while, and during that period, it seems, in, I don't know when this is, I think it's like 2013, John McNeil did a world record attempt, and he actually put it on Twitch. So that's on Twitch TV, and he's in Springwood, which is in Queensland, Australia. And he got a score of 3,826,076. took him two hours and 26 minutes to do it. And he did, uh, watching the stats here, he got 102 levels that he did perfect on. Like those whole, you know, don't bump anybody. So he gets 5,100,000 points wow. or something, or 510,000 points or whatever, just for those levels. Uh, he did 713,000 on his first life. <laughs> crazy, Whoa. man. That's nuts. Just crazy. Though he wrote all about the game without the second apostrophe. So I think that score doesn't count. <laughs> or sorry, I mean, doesn't count. I see. Yeah. And so anyway, I will have a link to that over on Classic Gaming Arcade Forum. They have a whole discussion of that and links to the Twitch video and sort of that submission. So as far as I can tell, that was the last sort of authenticated one, but it wasn't necessarily authenticated by... Twin Galaxies. But it seems that that is the current world record holder just from a couple of years ago. Hmm. Okay. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Except for the whole, you know, not using that second apostrophe, which just invalidates everything, like you said. Exactly what I say. All right. So I kind of like this game. Me um, too. Not my favorite driving game. I, I think that the more advanced and obviously released later on Spy Hunter is a better game. But yeah. this is one that, that you can emulate easily without having to have the cabinet. And Spy Hunter is not. So I guess this will have to fill in for me until I get a Spy Hunter. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, fun pick-up-and-play game. Yeah. I dug it. Like, I really enjoyed playing it, and I'll definitely come back to it. It's a, it's a classic for a reason. Oh, you know what? One last thing we never mentioned. It was on, it's one of those games that was featured on Starcade. Starcade episode 159. So there, just that's the last bit of notes. So I've now cleared out all my notes. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of another, well, not quite to the end of another no quarter episode. We've got a couple of things left to talk about. Uh, but first, we'll pick a game for next week and we won't tell you what it is. Neener, neener. But will we play a hint? Yes, we will. Do you have a couple of uh, news items that I forgot to mention at the top of the show? Ooh, let's mention them at the bottom. 
Well, and one of them is kind of important because it happens on Friday the 19th, which is coming up. Um, and I know that it is our habit to not talk about things before they happen um, so that you could be there or anything like that. Arcadeheroes.com has an article about an arcade called The One-Up, and in this case, it's spelled O-N-E, and it's uh, opening in Sherman Oaks, California on Ventura Boulevard on Friday, September 19th. Oh, nice. Um, and they're calling it uh, – the, the <laughs> this is a, a restaurant and arcade, and the type of restaurant it is is an arcade gastro lounge, which – Okay. They describe it as a, a head chef Mario, get it, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, features new American plate, okay, so crappy bar food, of traditional recipes with a unique twist. Dishes like Captain Crunch fried chicken. I, I what? added the ew, ew, ew point. Yeah. So um, you probably want to eat somewhere else before you go to Oh, this place, America. But, uh, they say you can play all of your favorite classic arcade games. Uh, the one that features 15 cabinets offering over 400 free games from Pac-Man to Donkey Kong to Street Fighter. So what they've got is uh, four of A lot these of multicades. And multicades. 15 of these multicades that you can play, which, I don't know, seems pretty cool to me. Sure. Uh, they do have a website up. It's called the One Up LA. And that, so that'll be opening on Friday, and maybe we'll have to show up before then. Also, there is a, a Pac-Man-themed uh, restaurant opening in Chicago. You know, Chicago seems to be this awesome place for arcades that are opening up, and I think I should move there at some point. The The article over on the avclub.com says that Pac-Man is getting his own restaurant in Chicago. This is the uh, Pac-Man-inspired level 257 restaurant, a nod to the 256 levels in the original arcade game, the 40,000-square-foot venue. Good Lord. We'll host uh, a cocktail lounge, 16 bowling lanes, and private party space for 300 in addition to the arcade the central restaurant will serve fresh and innovative dishes prepared by chefs. <laughs> well, that's good. That's crazy, though. Yeah. Like, the size, that 40, that's like the size of a Home Depot. What if they have some sort of guarantee that your food's 50 minutes or, or it's cold? <laughs> Marketing manager Natalie Cousins says that level 257 will not be specifically Pac-Man themed. Uh, instead, there will be many hints of him around the venue, which I think means Pac-Man themed. I think means they didn't get a license deal. Well, what it says is the uh, the venue will have a gallery featuring artwork showing Pac-Man as a, a global pop icon and a Pac-Man retail shop. And this is being done uh, in conjunction with Namco. So oh, it sounds okay. like they are licensed. Their website is uh, level257.com and it says coming soon to Chicagoland in early 2015. So something to look forward to. And when they bring you your bill, they probably give you a bunch of mints and they put them all in a row. <laughs> That's right. Carrington, do you have anything else for us this week? Nope. I bumped and I jumped. And now you're sick. And I'm sick. Go get some sleep. I'm good. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com. And like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. <laughs>